Section 5 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Gesine. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 1, by James Boswell. Section 5. He very early began to attempt keeping notes or memorandums by way of a diary of his life. I find in a parcel of loose leaves the following spirited resolution to contend against his natural indolence. October 1729 Desidie validixi, Serenis istius cantibus sodam posthac aurem obversarus. I bid farewell to sloth, being resolved henceforth not to listen to her siren strains. I have also in my possession a few leaves of another libellus, or little book, entitled Annals, in which some of the early particulars of his history are registered in Latin. I do not find that he formed any close intimacies with his fellow collegians, but Dr. Adams told me that he contracted a love and regard for Pembroke College, which he retained to the last. A short time before his death he sent to that college a present of all his works, to be deposited in their library, and he had thoughts of leaving to it his house at Litchfield, but his friends, who were about him, very properly dissuaded him from it, and he bequeathed it to some poor relations. He took a pleasure in boasting of the many eminent men who had been educated at Pembroke. In this list are found the names of Mr. Hawkins, the poetry professor, Mr. Shenstone, Sir William Blackstone, and others, not forgetting the celebrated popular preacher, Mr. George Whitefield, of whom, though Dr. Johnson did not think very highly, it must be acknowledged that his eloquence was powerful, his views pious and charitable, his assiduity almost incredible, and that since his death the integrity of his character has been fully vindicated. Being himself a poet, Johnson was peculiarly happy in mentioning how many of the sons of Pembroke were poets, adding with a smile of sportive triumph, Sir, we are a nest of singing birds. He was not, however, blind to what he thought the defects of his own college, and I have, from the information of Dr. Taylor, a very strong instance of that rigid honesty which he ever inflexibly preserved. Taylor had obtained his father's consent to be entered of Pembroke, that he might be with his schoolfellow Johnson, with whom, though some years older than himself, he was very intimate. This would have been a great comfort to Johnson. But he fairly told Taylor that he could not, in conscience, suffer him to enter where he knew he could not have an able tutor. He then made inquiry all round the university, and having found that Mr. Bateman, of Christchurch, was the tutor of highest reputation, Taylor was entered of that college. Mr. Bateman's lectures were so excellent that Johnson used to come and get them at second hand from Taylor, 
till his poverty being so extreme that his shoes were worn out, and his feet appeared through them, he saw that this humiliating circumstance was perceived by the Christchurch men, and he came no more. He was too proud to accept of money, and, somebody having set a pair of new shoes at his door, he threw them away with indignation. How must we feel when we read such an anecdote of Samuel Johnson? His spirited refusal of an eleemosynary supply of shoes arose, no doubt, from a proper pride. But considering his ascetic disposition at times, as acknowledged by himself in his meditations, and the exaggeration with which some have treated the peculiarities of his character, I should not wonder to hear it described to a principle of superstitious mortification, as we are told by Tersilinus, in his Life of St. Ignatius Loyola, that this intrepid founder of the Order of Jesuits, when he arrived at Goa, after having made a severe pilgrimage through the eastern deserts, persisted in wearing his miserable shattered shoes, and when new ones were offered him, rejected them as an unsuitable indulgence. The res angusta domi prevented him from having the advantage of a complete academical education. The friend to whom he had trusted for support had deceived him. His debts in college, though not great, were increasing, and his scanty remittances from Litchfield, which had all along been made with great difficulty, could be supplied no longer, his father having fallen into a state of insolvency. Compelled, therefore, by irresistible necessity, he left the college in autumn 1731, without a degree, having been a member of it little more than three years. Dr. Adams, the worthy and respectable master of Pembroke College, has generally had the reputation of being Johnson's tutor. The fact, however, is that in 1731 Mr. Jordan quitted the college and his pupils were transferred to Dr. Adams, so that had Johnson returned, Dr. Adams would have been his tutor. It is to be wished that this connection had taken place. His equal temper, mild disposition and politeness of manners might have insensibly softened the harshness of Johnson, and infused into him those more delicate charities, those petites morales, in which, it must be confessed, our great moralist was more deficient than his best friends could fully justify. Dr. Adams paid Johnson this high compliment. He said to me at Oxford in 1776, I was his nominal tutor, but he was above my mark. When I repeated it to Johnson, his eyes flashed with grateful satisfaction, and he exclaimed, That was liberal and noble. And now, I had almost said poor, Samuel Johnson returned to his native city, destitute, and not knowing he should gain even a decent livelihood. His father's misfortunes in trade rendered him unable to support his son, and for some time there appeared no means by which he could maintain himself. In the December of this year his father died. The state of poverty in which he died appears from a note in one of Johnson's little diaries of the following year, which strongly displays his spirit 
and virtuous dignity of mind. 1732, Julii 15. Undecim areus deposui, quodie quicquid ante matris funus, quod serum sit precor, de paternis bonis spirari licet, viginti scilicet libras accepi. Usqua deo mihi fortuna fingenda est. Interia ne papatate veris animi languescant ne in flagilia egestas abigat cavendum. I laid by eleven guineas on this day, when I received twenty pounds, being all that I have reason to hope for out of my father's effects, previous to the death of my mother, an event which I pray God may be very remote. I now therefore see that I must make my own fortune. Meanwhile, let me take care that the powers of my mind may not be debilitated by poverty, and that indigence do not force me into any criminal act. Johnson was so far fortunate that the respectable character of his parents and his own merit had from his earliest years secured him a kind reception in the best families at Litchfield. Among these I can mention Mr. Howard, Mr. Swinfen, Mr. Simpson, Mr. Levitt, Captain Garrick, father of the great ornament of the British stage, but above all Mr. Gilbert Walmsley, register of the prerogative court of Litchfield, whose character long after his decease Dr. Johnson has, in his life of Edmund Smith, thus drawn in the glowing colours of gratitude. Of Gilbert Walmsley, thus presented to my mind, let me indulge myself in the remembrance. I knew him very early. He was one of the first friends that literature procured me, and I hope that, at least, my gratitude may be worthy of his notice. He was of an advanced age, and I was only not a boy, yet he never received my notions with contempt. He was a Whig, with all the virulence and malevolence of his party, yet difference of opinion did not keep us apart. I honoured him, and he endured me. He had mingled with the gay world without exemption from its vices or its follies, but had never neglected the cultivation of his mind. His belief of revelation was unshaken. His learning preserved his principles. He grew first regular and then pious. His studies had been so various that I am not able to name a man of equal knowledge. His acquaintance with books was great, and what he did not immediately know he could at least tell where to find. Such was his amplitude of learning, and such his copiousness of communication, that it may be doubted whether a day now passes in which I have not some advantage from his friendship. At this man's table I enjoyed many cheerful and instructive hours, with companions such as are not often found, with one who has lengthened and one who has gladdened life, with Dr. James, whose skill in physic will be long remembered, and with David Garrick, whom I hoped to have gratified, with this character of our common friend. But what are the hopes of men? I am disappointed by the stroke of death, which has eclipsed the gaiety of nations and impoverished the public stock of harmless pleasure. In these families he passed much time in his early years. In most of them he was in the company of ladies, 
particularly at Mr. Wormsley's, whose wife and sisters-in-law, in the name of Aston, and daughters of a baronet, were remarkable for good breeding, so that the notion which has been industriously circulated and believed that he never was in good company till late in life, and consequently had been confirmed in coarse and ferocious manners by long habits, is wholly without foundation. Some of the ladies have assured me they recollected him well when a young man, as distinguished for his complaisance, and that this politeness was not merely occasional and temporary, or confined to the circles of Lichfield, is ascertained by the testimony of a lady who, in a paper with which I have been favoured by a daughter of his intimate friend and physician, Dr. Lawrence, thus describes Dr. Johnson some years afterwards. As the particulars of the former part of Dr. Johnson's life do not seem to be very accurately known, a lady hopes that the following information may not be unacceptable. She remembers Dr. Johnson on a visit to Dr. Taylor at Ashbourne some time between the end of the year 37 and the middle of the year 40. She rather thinks it to have been after he and his wife were removed to London. During his stay at Ashbourne he made frequent visits to Mr. Maynell at Bradley, where his company was much desired by the ladies of the family, who were perhaps in point of elegance and accomplishments inferior to few of those with whom he was afterwards acquainted. Mr. Maynell's eldest daughter was afterwards married to Dr. Fitzherbert, father of Mr. Elaine Fitzherbert, lately minister to the court of Russia. Of her, Dr. Johnson said, in Dr. Lawrence's study, that she had the best understanding he ever met with in any human being. At Mr. Maynell's, he also commenced that friendship with Mrs. Hill Boothby, sister to the present Sir Brooke Boothby, which continued till her death. The young woman whom he used to call Molly Aston was sister to Sir Thomas Aston, and daughter to a baronet. She was also sister to the wife of his friend, Mr. Gilwood Wormsley. Besides his intimacy with the above-mentioned persons, who were surely people of rank and education, while he was yet at Lichfield, he used to be frequently at the house of Mr. Swindfen, a gentleman of a very ancient family in Staffordshire, from which, after the death of his elder brother, he inherited a good estate. He was, besides, a physician of very extensive practice, but for want of due attention to the management of his domestic concerns, left a very large family in indigence. One of his daughters, Mrs. Desmoulins, afterwards found an asylum in the house of her old friend, whose doors were always open to the unfortunate, and who well observed the precept of the gospel, for he was kind to the unthankful, and to the evil. In the forlorn state of his circumstance, he accepted an offer to be employed as usher in the school of Market Bosworth in Leicestershire, to which it appears from one of his little fragments of a diary that he went on foot on the 16th of July. Julii 16th. Bosvortium pedis petti. But it is not true as has been erroneously related, that he was assistant to the famous Antony Blackwall, 
whose merit has been honoured by the testimony of Bishop Hurd, who was his scholar, for Mr. Blackwall died on the 8th of April, 1730, more than a year before Johnson left the university. This employment was very irksome to him in every respect, and he complained grievously of it in his letters to his friend Mr. Hector, who was now settled as a surgeon at Birmingham. The letters are lost, but Mr. Hector recollects his writing that the poet had described the dull sameness of his existence in these words, Vitam continet una dies, one day contains the whole of my life, that it was unvaried as the note of the cuckoo, and that he did not know whether it was more disagreeable for him to teach or the boys to learn the grammar rules. His general aversion to this painful drudgery was greatly enhanced by a disagreement between him and Mr. Walston Dixie, the patron of the school, in whose house, I have been told, he officiated as a kind of domestic chaplain, so far, at least, as to say grace at table, and was treated with what he represented as intolerable harshness. And after suffering for a few months such complicated misery, he relinquished a situation which all his life afterwards he recollected with the strongest aversion, and even a degree of horror. But it is probable that at this period, whatever uneasiness he may have endured, he laid the foundation of much future eminence by application to his studies. End of section 5 Read by Gesine in April 2007